going. Grand finale there. Bring it up. You are my sunshine. My only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. And now comes the $50,000 prize mystery number. Would you please bring it on, Professor? This is the $50,000 prize mystery number. Can you identify it? Can you identify this tune? It's worth $50,000. I'm the sheen of air, the bean. Oh, your love belongs to me. What tune is this, friends? At night when you're asleep. Listen, da-da-da, da creep creep creepity creep The stars that shine above will light our way to loving, loving dove. Oh, you rule, you rule this land with me, baby. I'm the sheik, sheik, sheik of Arabi. Yes, a $50,000 mystery tune. Yes, uh, be the first in your neighborhood to be eligible to win this fantastic prize. Blow that thing. $50,000 award melody for this week, and we will give you the clues about it later on. Clues one and two will be heard later on in the program. And now for a real clue as to what this is all about, please, Matt, hit the button. Here's Stan Getz and Astrid Gilberto for McLean's. It's McLean's, the toothpaste that cleans with a new kind of taste that's wild. What a taste, what a thing. When you smile, all the bells will ring. Get them white, start tonight with McLean's. Taste the difference, try new McLean's, you go. You still using that sweet kid stuff? Try the new toothpaste that gets teeth irresistibly white. You can actually feel McLean's whitening. Your whole mouth feels refreshed and invigorated. Got him white. Start tonight with McLean's. Taste the difference. Try new McLean's. You go. Ah. 
But would you please set that second thing up there, that little number that we... Yes, let's do accompany our stag film, okay? Put it up, all right. Yeah, second one. No, I'll give you the cue on it there. When we get the film in the, the sprocket holes here. Yeah. Very exciting film, by the way. I suggested to the, to the radio station, the television executives here, in case you're interested in that, why aren't we the first station to come on the air with those films that they used to show at the Legion Hall? Two o'clock in the morning, you remember, and they used to go and raid it, and they put all the guys in the, in the, in the paddy wagon, you know? We'd be the first guys to have an evening show of that, and we'd have to get some very important film critic to do the commentary on it under the guise of art. Think of the rating. Yes, sir. Ah! You see, the, the, whole <laughs> the whole principle of civilization, anyway, is to try to cover all bases. And if you can, if you can somehow, oh yes, it's always been the case. No, sir, it has never changed. That we all know there are certain things that are wrong, right? You know, like killing each other, like thinking dirty thoughts. Uh, you know all this stuff. We know this is wrong. Let's face it. Basically, and it's it's a very difficult thing for man to rationalize that which he knows secretly inside of himself is wrong. It takes a long time. This is called advancing civilization. That the, <laughs> that the more, that the, this is called progress. And the closer you can bring the rotten things you really want to do into line with the grandiose schemes and ideas that you think you stand for, that is the closer, the more you reach that peak, the better. In other words, it's taken 25 years for the stag film that used to show at the Legion Hall to become art. Uh, and that's not, it wasn't an easy process. It took hundreds of working critics. It took thousands of working pornographers. It took uh, endless sweat and miles and miles of police blotter was used up on the way. And now finally we have arrived at the day when they are reviewed in Vogue and in Esquire. Now that wasn't easy. Now, now uh, we often, for example, let's take the business of killing people. You know, this is a very hard thing to do. You know, it, It's difficult to get to the point where it becomes a moral crusade to do. It takes 20 years for each uh, various moral crusades to get underway. A lot of people think that there's a war in the in the offing, in the wings. When wasn't there a war in the wings? In fact, uh, it has been said often by many sociologists that there has been one continual war that's been only broken by vague moments of irresponsibility called peace. And uh, these... <laughs> <laughs> you know, when everybody just runs around, sits around on the beaches and hollers and yells and blows up balloons and hits cars together and all that stuff. That's called, you know, this is a, you, so it depends on what your view of the natural state of man is. It depends just exactly on how you you uh, define man. Is man a warlike creature or is man a klutz that sits around at Jones Beach and inhales uh, beer? Which is he? pretty hard to tell. They do not have any statues in the park of guys sitting around with big bronze Bermuda shorts on, drinking beer. And that says underneath it, our benefactor, Otto J. Fig Newton, set the, set the record for beer drinking at Jones Beach, 1939, 17 consecutive cans in two and a half minutes without taking a breath. Uh, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing is hardly ever accorded, and the honor that uh, 
that it should be, actually. As a matter of fact, I had a, a, an uncle, you know, speaking of, of great performers in this field. My uncle had one standard party trick, Uncle Carl, who was a skinny uncle, by the way. And Uncle Carl, you know, was, was drunk from the time he was about 10 all the way through the Depression. In fact, you know, in 1956, there was, he, he said the reason he was drunk was because there was no chance for a good man in the Depression. He said that he'd be a drinker. And in 1956, they were still yelling at him, trying to convince him the Depression was over. And uh, Uncle Carl said, not for me. Uh, <laughs> as far as I know, he carried the Depression to his grave, right with him. And uh, now, now the point is, though, that Uncle Carl, like everyone else of us, all of us, we have one little tricky that somewhere along the line we have perfected. Now, probably among my listening audience, there are a lot of knuckle crackers who, uh, when things get rough and they're sitting in front of the desk, reach down surreptitiously and crack their knuckles. That kind of thing. I had a friend who could crack, had an eight, actually had a, a full octave range. Knuckle cracking used to sit there and accompany the Wayne King Orchestra on the radio. Very good on marches, too, by the way. He was fantastic on Semper Fidelis. I remember that. He played the xylophone part. However, <laughs> uh, all of us have a little thing. Well, my Uncle Carl had one particular gambit which he used to use at parties. And it fulfilled two functions. You see, uh, Uncle Carl was very conscious of the fact that he was a drinker. Now, now, if you all listen to me, this is one of those Shepherd Deepy analog. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just a little a analogies there. Has a deeper meaning. Okay, so like all of us, you know, have a secret realization that we are killers. We really are, you know, underneath and all. We got these fangs, and, and uh, we're pretty tough people. We are actually, and so uh, somehow, if we can turn that thing into a positive value. We've achieved a great thing. Well, my Uncle Carl, you see, was very conscious of his drinking. And in fact, there was a standing rule. Uncle Carl would be laying there under the radiator, see, when you'd come into the house, and his feet would be sticking out. There was a standard rule when you went to visit Uncle Carl and Aunt Min, don't mention Uncle Carl's drinking. Don't mention it. And Aunt Min would bring him out, you see, and he would be reeled out of wherever he is. He's sleeping under the ferns or something. Then some part of that had things in. They they drag him out. Uncle he always liked the country life, and they would drag Uncle Carl out, and they would prop him up with phone books. They did. They really did. They'd prop him up, and he, they'd they'd sit him there, and they would uh, everybody would pretend that Uncle Carl was playing pinochle. They had only one rule when Uncle Carl played pinochle. He was always dummy. And they 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 you know they deal the cards to him they turn them over and my grandpa would play his hand and my uncle would play his uncle Al and my dad was plays and the uncle Carl would just sit there with his eyes hanging out and uh, he, he used to be able to turn them both in opposite directions simultaneously and he would just sit there and his eyes would roll and he was very very sensitive about his drinking which he always pretended he did not do but when he did occasionally he had a nip for his nerves he would say got bad nerves. And so Uncle Carl, you'd hear him. You'd, we'd be in the house, and Uncle Carl would be down at the Bluebird, which is halfway up in the next block, and you would hear the sound, this great siphoning sound going on. And it is Uncle Carl trying to work his way through seven vats with the bronze things, you know, and he's down there sucking. He used to suck it right out of the taps. Well, Uncle Carl, Uncle Carl was very sensitive, like many of us are sensitive about the very thing which is our weakness. The very thing. In fact, you know, I, I can tell you, when I talk about the role reversal 
on the show here. I received 75 letters from angry men telling me that it's ridiculous, there's no such thing, all written on light lavender paper, lightly scented with gentian. Now, <laughs> with that nice round handwriting, you know, you know what I'm talking about, you know. The kind of handwriting where they make the dots over the eyes, are little circles, seen that kind of handwriting, you know. And I, I also get large numbers of letters from ladies, see. And, and these are, what do you mean, you fantastic language? There's no such thing, you're imagining it. And this is written on old Bull Durham wrappers from these ladies. And you can see there's a little tobacco juice hanging on the edge of it. And there are just a few little clippings of mustaches in there, lady mustaches, you know. So we are very sensitive about the very thing which we are. How many people who are parading for peace are the most violent people in the neighborhood? Boy, I've known dozens of them. I'll tell you, gimlet-eyed. I know one guy that goes around, he's a folk singer, see? And he sings, It's a band a long time a-coming, This peaceful world of ours. It's a-blowing, it's a-blowing in the long-gone wind. It's He sings about peace and beauty and truth. And in secret, this guy carries a 17-foot bull whip with nails sticking out at the end of it. He really does. And he goes, pow, you know, knocks the plaster down. Bang, you know, he sits there and he... And I know another friend of mine who, by the way, you'd be surprised who this guy is. Very famous man, nationally known, who is a famous lover of humanity. His name is on every last uh, list of sponsors. You know, you get the letter, it says, please send $10. Here are these famous guys, and they got Adley Stevenson always in. There's all the rest of these guys down the line, you know. The, the lovers of humanity, this list. There's an official list of that crowd. There's Mary Manis, there's... Uh, <laughs> they're all there, you know. They're all... The, the, these are the lovers. Nat Hentoff, all this crowd. They're, they're the official lovers of humanity, and it's a very hard club to crack. Now, if you're an unofficial lover of humanity, forget it. You're a $10 bill sender-inner. Now, most of those people don't send in $10 bills. They just get their name on letters. That's another scene. In fact, that's an official club. Very difficult one to crack. It really is a very hard one. And so I happen to know one of these guys, and he does these very official television programs. You know, they come on on Sunday. They come on with the sound of gothic music being played behind it. and It's a public affairs thing of the entire network. He's got little crinkles around the eyes. And he's the kind of guy who's always looking at some rotten guy like James Hoffa, you know. Hoffa's sitting there. Hoffa's like, I say we're going to go out, we're going to march. And I say this, we're going to get after them guys that own them trucking companies. They ain't going to push Jimmy around. And I'm telling all them guys, get out there on that picket line. And, you know, and, he, and, and this guy is looking very pained. He's looking very pain. And then he always, his rejoinder is, you mean to tell me, Mr. Hoffa, deep down in your heart, that the little people of this nation, the little people who make up the backbone of humanity, actually want war? I can't accept that idea. Because we all the little... He goes on and on. You see this, this beautiful lover of peace and truth and beauty in the little men. Uh, oh, boy, I'll tell you, talk about skeet. Speaking of skeet, sorry, this is WOR, AM and FME, New Yorkie, and hit the button, man. Let's go. This is the sound of the discotheque, the stereophonic dance craze that's sweeping America. And right here, what a scene it is. A whole room rocking to the driving beat of a wild Watusi. 
and here where you find today's sound and today's people, you'll find today's beer. Schlitz, listen. And that girl plays the records. And that and girl you... brings the Schlitz. Oh, this. Hey, you guys want another picture? You're kidding? There's always room for one more Schlitz. Bring on the Today's sound, today's people, and real gusto in a great light beer. Today's beer, Schlitz, from the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company, Milwaukee and other cities. Hey, Martin, uh, you got another Schlitz back there? Friendly. The day we're out of Schlitz is the day we're out of beer. Then there's a spot for pot. Holy smokes. <laughs> and now we take you direct to poolside. A one-minute spot bringing you the actual sounds of a Roman orgy. Come in, Roman orgy. Evil! <laughs> Wonderful moment there. Great moments in truth. However, uh, <laughs> you <laughs> did you hear that spot? It's fantastic. Holy smokes. That ain't a beard. That's a way of life. Well, I was going to tell you about my Uncle Carl, huh? You want to hear about old, old Uncle Carl, how he used to stop the party? This reminds me here in the Schlitz spot. Old Uncle Carl used to stop the party this way. You see, he was very sensitive about his slurping it up, you know. And uh, he lived before the days of the fun commercial. Have you noticed that the fun commercial never paints anything but... Uh, everything you do is fun. Every last thing in the world is fun. Like being smelly is fun. And, uh, oh, sure, have you seen those happy people uh, washing the smell off of them with the special new soap that has 24-hour guard and having a lot of fun? And the, oh yeah, it's all fun. Did you see the guy whose car stopped in mid-flight and the oil filter blows up? It's fun. Yeah, nothing fun. And they're never caught out in the turnpike at two in the morning in a driving rainstorm. You know, people yelling and hollering, the cops pinching them, and finally a truck hits them in the back end. This, uh, you know, this is never shown as part of that life. Have you ever noticed when new cars in, in TV commercials, they never show these new cars in the middle of a giant traffic jam on 49th Street overheated? Never. <laughs> you know, I think that, not once. And yet, that's where most cars spend their lives. And, you know, they got the dust all about them. And the kids have written things on the side, you know, with their fingers and all that. At the, you know, that would be a very interesting idea for a car. The first pop art car where the things come from the factory already written on. You know? And uh, that would really confuse the bunch in the parking lot, you know. <laughs> and you could get professional writers, you know, of obscenity, like Terry Southern to write stuff on your trunk. You know, get uh, get, <laughs> get real stuff, you know. And you can always say, well, you know, what are you going to do? The kids do it, you know. The kids do it. Did I ever tell you about the time the guy out in in, uh, in Ohio got this fantastic license plate? You know, they make the license plates out there in the prison. And uh, Ohio has a system like... Connecticut, you know, where you have letters in your license plate, like you can get the... I saw one the other day, it said beer, B-E-E-R, beer. And it was reeling down the street. You never saw anything. The guy, you know, he, this is his favorite word. He got it, you know, he got it on his license plate. Uh, Connecticut has that. Well, one guy in Cincinnati, one day, about five years ago, opened up his mail, and he got his license plate, and it contained an unbelievable word. 
he, it was a fantastic word. You know, he, it was the kind of license you'd always like to have, you know. And you'd say, oh, they'd never do that. I'll bet they don't. And you keep looking for it. You, know, you keep watching plates and you keep looking in the, in the phone book to see if it's under, you know, some guy's got that name. And you keep looking it up in dictionaries and all that stuff and see if they finally listed it, you know. Here's this guy driving around Cincinnati, a great big blue and white plate, four-letter word, knocking it out. And he had lights on all sides of it. And he's driving around. <laughs> And it was on his. It was on his registration. You know, just a simple, simple, simple word, no numbers, just one word. That's all. Well, they never did find the con who turned that one out. Some guy in this in the state pen of Ohio. You know, he says, "I'll show him." Watch this, Lefty. <laughs> oh boy, where did they get that one? And they so quick and sent it out, and and somehow it slipped through the net. You know how bureaucracy is. And do you know what happened to that guy? He got a 30-day suspended sentence for for pornography. <laughs> Driving around, they nailed him. You know, he said, "I don't make my own license plate. Look, it's on the thing." Get in here, Mac. Get in the car. Well, <laughs> so you know, you can you can become an innocent victim. So you want to hear about my uncle Carl? How he uh, how he used to euchre the crown? Well, Uncle Carl, you see, was very sensitive about his glugging. Very sensitive, and he would sit there. Uh, with his teeth clenched while my uncle Al and my father and my old grandpa are sitting there and they, they drink the beer, you know. No, 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 I don't, uh, I don't have any. Because the minute, uh, the minute Uncle Carl got near it, forget it. it. The party was over. Because Uncle Carl was the kind of guy who in the last stages of this phenomenon would tear phone books in half. After that, he would tear the curtains in half. And after that, he would try to tear Aunt Min in half. And so it got to be a very nasty situation. See, they always trying to keep him away from this. Yeah, by the way, that's another thing. Have you noticed that, that in this, this, the idea of the fun commercial, it is never, ever implied that there is any other product of life or action than fun. And so have you noticed that every last one of these beer commercials, it shows this wild party. You know, these, the great parties they're always having, whether it's the, the Jewish party or the Italian party. Oh, there's nothing but fun there. You never see the one guy says, Oh, get your hands off my girl! You know, and the next thing you know, pow, crash. He says, I don't know what we're doing, but we must be doing something right. And crash, bang, and you hear him falling down the stairs, and the whistle's coming from all directions. And they say, yes, where the Greeks get together, friends. <laughs> they never show this. Well... Well, Uncle Carl lived before that day, you see. Now, today, we know that almost anything that happens to you is basically fun. I know guys who look upon getting as fun. It is. It's a, it's a big fun game. It's a, yeah, they get, you know what the term busted means, you know. They throw them in the wagon. They have their friends come and take their picture when they're getting thrown in the wagon to prove to their friends back in Clifton that they really did get busted, you know. And so, oh, yeah, oh, there's a, you know that there's a photographer on hand now at the tombs 24 hours Take pictures of you when you're being booked. So when your friends don't believe you, you can prove it to them. You know, like they used to have photographers at weddings and stuff like that. This guy says, yeah, three for a dollar. Here is a picture of you. And the sergeant's got you by the scruff of the neck. You know, and the other guy's hitting you on the head with a club. And you see, this is me. Saturday. Oh, what a night. Holy smokes. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. And you're a hero. Well, Uncle Carl lived before those days. When, uh, oh sure, many, many a guy today brags about how Squifty got Saturday. That's a big deal. Oh wow. Little 16 year old kids that come on. Oh wow, what a day. Holy smokes. Oh, did I get bagged. Woo. He had two bottles of Yoohoo, you know. 
and uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. See, they're, they're always, that's a big bit, you see. But in those days, you hid it. Now, do you see the difference? You did not go around and say, did I get screwed? I remember a guy sitting through Biology 2 class one time, just sat there bolt upright ahead of me. <laughs> he sat there, and I couldn't figure out what was the matter. It was the first time in the entire semester he sat up straight. You know, everybody, you know, he slumped. The guy used to slump there, and I could see right over him. Now he's sitting up real straight. Well, the bell rang, and everybody got up and walked out. And I'm standing there watching all slowly tipped over and fell into the aisle. He was trying to prevent the teacher from knowing that he had made the scene. See, big, with, you know, he had a couple of Cokes. There was a rumor when I was a kid that if you took a Coke and put two aspirins in it, it was goodbye, Charlie. Well, <laughs> guys were always trying that, you know, to shake it up like that. And all I got was a lot of Coke foam in her eye, you know, and that else, you know, funny taste, a little bitter. But kids used to pretend. Oh, yeah, it is the truth that, that to a guy who wants to get drunk, you can you can give him anything and he'll get oh sure absolutely you give him grape juice you know to which you have added a little vinegar you say try this Charlie ooh wow what's this stuff you say well that's a rare Greek drink that's a rare Greek drink and let me tell you it's a hundred and ninety proof and they say that one thimbleful is enough to start a whole Greek revolution forget it there's been millions of people killed just drinking this stuff it's really He's drinking grape juice. He welches, which is a little bit of vinegar. Ooh. Okay, give me some water. Holy smokes. Great stuff. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. These are great stuff. Holy smokes. Has it hit me? I'm getting squiffed. Wow. Oh, I'm getting sick. And then he says, give me a little more. Oh, my sunshine. He's bagged on two teaspoons full of, full of grape. I, I I knew a guy, for example, oh, yeah, almost, people are susceptible to kicks, you know. Some people. It's the truth. Are you aware that, that many people do not react to many of the drugs which are considered real big deals, you know? I, I, I know a guy for over four years tried to get any effect at all from pot. Nothing. It never happened. You see, and other people say, what? You mean pot? Whoa! They, all I had to do was think about it. And they're floating around, yelling and hollering. And so, <laughs> I, I, this, is, this, is, this is a phenomenon. It's the susceptibility to kick. Well, Uncle, Uncle Carl, you see, fought his entire life pretending he was not ever drunk. Ever. And he would walk down the street with the wind blowing hard against him, you know, and he'd be walking down the street. And Uncle Carl would look very solemnly. He'd tip his hat to you and say, how are you? How are you? And you'd ever say, very good. And then he would proceed to continue to walk backward, uh, upright, upright, you see, because he could lean into the wind that way and still keep his hat on. He had developed all kinds of little gambits. But one thing Uncle Carl, I remember, used to do, we'd sit around the table, all of us playing pinochle. My Uncle Carl sitting there playing dummy, and his eyes are absolutely stony. You know that, that look of the guy who's fighting against bags? He just sort of... Sort of a, a concrete look about the face. My dad is dealing, and Uncle Alice is playing the cards there, and Grandpa's playing cards. All of a sudden, somebody would say, Carl, uh, would you show us your trick? And Uncle Carl said, Well, yes, I'd be glad to. And my Aunt Min would burn. Because here's what the trick consisted of my Grandpa would go to the refrigerator, and he would take out seven bottles of beer. And he would empty them into this big pitcher. They had a big pitcher, you know, the kind that you put lemonade in. 
Uncle Carl's trick was that he could drink an entire pitcher of beer without taking a breath. Therefore, turning his chief fault into a great party gambit and the only thing that he was good for at a party. And so he's sitting, he takes, he's like, boom, 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 boom. And everyone would say, oh boy, he'll never do it. He'll, boom, boom, boom. They'd say, oh, no, he's got, he's just got to blast. He's got to blow up. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, he's got to take a breath now. He'll never make it. Of course, everyone knew he's going to make it because he's been doing the same trick, you see, since he was nine at every party he ever went to. Boom, boom, boom. And my grandpa says, he'll never make it this time. Boom, boom. Uh, down it goes. And Uncle Carl goes, ah, He puts it down. Fantastic burp. He lays it down. That was his way of drinking seven bottles of beer without appearing to drink seven bottles of beer. <laughs> and everyone applauded him for it. Had he drunk the seven bottles of beer on a freelance basis, some would say, say, now, Carl, you know, after all, you know, you're falling off the chair at the... And we always, I noticed that they always did this at the very end of the evening. Uncle Carr was allowed to do his trick. He drink, he drink the entire pitcher of beer, and everyone said, "Well, I guess it's time to go." They put on their hats, and while we're going down the down the steps, you know, into the cars and all that, you could hear the sound of Uncle Carl going after Aunt Min with the ball bat. <laughs> now, now this this side of life hardly ever mentioned. You know, you just you just uh, constantly shear off from this. Now. On the other hand, since there are things in life we don't mention, when you do mention them, you're called a kook. You notice that? If you if you mention, oh, this guy's a kook. You know, everybody's got a drunken uncle, but you, yet, nevertheless, you're a kook if you talk about him. Well, I am beginning to believe. Now, you got that thing set up in there, Matt? Watch it carefully. I'm beginning to believe that if you report on life the way it is, the way it seems to be, you are in dire danger. You must romanticize either the evil in man or the good in man to be accepted as a sane, logical human being. And so night after night, I hear guys on, say, for example, the Barry Farber show. They're saying, and I'm telling you, Barry, I say that the inhumanity, which is now rampant in the world, I was talking to my wife, Rotor, the other day, and I said, Rotor, the... The kind of kids they have today, the world is going to hell. My book called All the Kids is Rotten, which is being brought out next month by Hoppers, will explain in detail many cases which we have discovered down at the Lower East Side Settlement House. And I say that the world is going to hell. And I, excuse the language, Barry, but after all, this is an important subject. I say that the world is going... Well, now here's a guy who is romanticizing evil. He's making it 50 times greater than it actually is. Now, on the other hand, there is the kind of guy who is quite quite the opposite. And he will, incidentally, both of them will go all the way. That the guy that romanticizes evil will become a presidential candidate. <laughs> he will he will he will be he will be uh, he will be asked to be on all the panels. He will be he will become a top writer in the civil rights issue. He will become almost any kind of thing that you want, you know, because he's, he's all the way out. He's romanticizing it. Now, there's the other kind of guy who romanticizes good. He's the kind of guy who comes on, he usually has a pulpit. Either that or, or uh, he has written a book, too. And he'll come on and say, And I tell you, Barry, I say 
that it lies within each one of us. If we have enough faith, if we have enough belief in God, I say to you that anything that we sow desire is possible. Why, I met a very important industrialist the other day who just two years ago was a man wallowing in the gutter. He was a man totally devoid of hope. He came to my office, Barry, and he said to me, Doctor, what can I do? I am a man devoid of hope. And I said to him, Look inside of yourself. Yes, will yourself a better tomorrow. I say, look inside of yourself, and the power, I say to you, the power, you are looking inside of life. And sure enough, the next day, he went out and he began to see the positive side of life. And today, that man is the manager of one of the largest machine gun factories in the world. That man has made of his life, I say, let's see, now that you've got both ends, and they'll both go all the way, you see. He is the guy that sees no evil in the world at all. <laughs> and any evil he sees, just take it away and just stop it. That's all. If those foolish people tomorrow morning, it's all away. So you can go one or the other the way. Now, if, if right down the middle is the one guy who keeps seeing both, you know. He's the nut. He will be called a kook by both sides. He will be driven out of town both by the guy that says, Barry, I say the one's going to the hell. He says, get after that guy there. That one... And the other guy will say, well, I say to you, Barry, that the kind of, the sort of people we call them cynics, where we come from, uh, he will drive you from the temple, like the money changer. Now, this is a curious phenomenon. It's very difficult. And, and, and today, you must be on one or the other side. Now, you see, you see people in, uh, take the village voice. The village voice is ripe. It's just rampant with people. Uh, who see only, who romanticize evil. They really do. They see evil where, it, where it's, you know, it's like the John Birchers see communism in the, in the birds, in the skies. You know, <laughs> they see it everywhere. Uh, and, and so many writers in, in various newspapers who make a business of ferreting out evil romanticize it just like many a magazine, say, for example, uh, oh, Good Housekeeping only sees beauty <laughs> in life. There's, uh, there's nothing but wonderful cheese souffles in life. Uh, nothing but, uh, but incessant, lovely times. Have you ever, have you ever listened to, to various radio programs that come out of various houses with husbands and wives that live in that never-never land of the good housekeeping world? Wouldn't you like to live in the world of Perry? You know? Wouldn't, wouldn't, <laughs> not a nice never-never. Wouldn't you like to live in the land of Alfred McKen? And Dora, whose only concern is whether the souffle is going to fall or whether the invitation got there on time for the chicken cooking contest in Maryland or whether the New Jersey eggs come rotten one week, you know, <laughs> something like that. We're just giving. And I had all these things in there, uh, uh, suggestions for, for things that we really would like to have instead of the stuff that we will always get. Now, for example, wouldn't you like to have somebody give you the Kansas City Athletics? and they'd let you play third? What do you mean, no? All right, that isn't your bag then. Wouldn't you like to have, wouldn't you like to have a stamp with your picture on it, and underneath it it says, our benefactor? That you go for, I see. <laughs> I mean, a real stamp that's on the letters, you know. It says, Matt Bayless, our benefactor, a great benefactor of humanity, five cents. 
You know, wouldn't that be, can't you imagine, with a big noble thing? Well, I, I said, no, no, I said, you, are you aware that these things are, are obtainable? There are certain small, certain small Latin American republics who are willing to put your face on a stamp providing you make the proper contribution to the general welfare of that country, as they said. And these are great Christmas gifts. Now, I suggested, I thought, I thought I was going way out, you know, and I said, now, I said, now, you know, you all know, uh, uh, real ignorant klutzes who are in charge of big businesses, you know. Some guy who rose from a, a nothing, you know, he's a great self-made man who has an education roughly of a chimpanzee, and he has, he has risen, he has risen to the top of the business, and his, wait, I can't see it. Top of the, Oh, you'd like to play first base for Detroit? I see. Well, <laughs> well, now can you imagine one Christmas morning you're lying there in a sack and you hear this clatter of these these spiked shoes outside of your bedroom, and and and, and all of a sudden you hear "Merry Christmas to you, Merry Christmas to you, Merry Christmas, dear Chief," and it's Al Kaline. See. It's Al Kaline, and, and, and with Al Kaline, behind him come the Detroit Tigers, and they say, Merry Christmas! And the chick looks over at you and says, I thought you'd like it, dear. And I, I, knew, I, I, there was, there, I knew there was something I could get that you just would like, and here it is. And then Kaline comes over and grabs you by the arm and says, Chief, first base is open. We're counting on you. What a Christmas gift. Holy smokes, can you imagine starting a season at first <laughs> with your own ball club in the majors? I expect that to happen yet one day in the majors. I really do. Now, I, 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 fin I finished up the article. Here's the point of it. I finished up the article with what I thought was a total fantasy. I said, I have worked for many guys whose chief, whose chief gambit is to sit at a giant desk made out of marble. And they're living up in this ivory tower. They're making $17 million a year. They own the entire company who say this. All right, I can buy PhDs a dime a dozen. I can buy PhDs a dime a dozen. All education is a bunk. Let me tell you this. I was a newsboy when I was five. I graduated from what? Third grade. All right. So I can buy PhDs. Well, as he gets older, this guy begins to have a terrible sense of inadequacy because he finds other people are reading and talking about stuff he doesn't understand, you know. And, and uh, he, uh, at first he says, Who's that Camus, that guy? What is this Camus? Camus? What do you mean, Camus? It says Camus. C-A-M. I can read C-A-M-U-S. It's Camus. And uh, this guy, you know, of course, is in trouble. By the time he's 87 years old, he somehow has to get involved in the academic world. So I suggested that there were several universities who would be more than happy to name their new biology lab after this guy with the proper amount of silver crossing the proper hands. And in fact, would probably even give him a chair emeritus if he would like it. He could sit there and be old doc, you know, uh, uh, you know, sit there and spend his declining days in the atmosphere. And also you can buy, you know, are you aware now, you can buy on the open market, providing the proper palms are... Salved, you can buy various honorary degrees. Oh, sure, an old klutz who for years has been hollering, I can buy PhDs for a dime a dozen. Nothing pleases him more than to stand up there on that platform and have this university president say, and because of his, his tremendous gift that he has given mankind in general, we name Charles J. 
lefty, greasy thumb goosick, as he is known to his companions so colorfully, we award him the degree of Doctor of Humane Philosophy. From henceforth, in Hakurikula Conk, in a spittle out, lefty Charles Applerot Goosick is known as Dr. Greasy Thumb Goosick. Oh, what a fantastic feeling. Well, what do I get in the mail? Listen to this one. Listen, fellas. Here it's come true, and I, and I, and I wonder how many of you remember that I predicted it. Wall Street Journal. Here is an ad. Wall Street Journal. It opens up with this statement. Would you please give me some important music? That's very important. And this from the Wall Street Journal, June 16, 1965. The world of education and the world of man moves forward. Do you want your name on a new college building? Liberal Arts College will name any of these new buildings for you for the following tax-deductible gifts. $85,000, gymnasium, $500,000, dormitory, $800,000, science building. Yes, it is now possible to envision the Lucky Luciano Science Laboratory. The Frank Costello Girls' Dorm. So if you have been suffering from cultural inferiority because of your third grade New Jersey education, it is now possible to enter the great world forever and henceforth eternally with your name emblazoned in ancient marble over those ivy-covered historical walls. And that's in the want ad. <laughs> there it is. And I thought, holy smokes, what next? What next? Whither goest thou, O mankind? Keep your knees loose, Dad. Don't worry. Just keep your old eyes open. Watch out for those hard-hit, sharp ground balls to your left. They have a tendency to have... There is no such thing as a... There is only such thing as a bad shortstop. So uh, be careful. Keep your mouth shut. You'll never catch one on the teeth. It's going to be all right. Drink your yoo-hoo. What is it, yoo-hoo? Yes, eat your wheat germ. And uh, what else? Well, any of the other things I can't mention on the radio, and I'm sure you know what I mean, but you just keep up with them and it's going to work out all right. And uh, by all means, have fun. Okay. <laughs>